Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fort Hill Community Church. We're going to be in John chapter 12. If you're going to turn there in your Bibles, we will have the scripture behind us as well. So you can turn there, John chapter 12, starting in verse 9, and then going to verse 19. Nearly two years ago, pop culture was caught off guard by the sudden release of a new album by hip-hop superstar Kanye West. I know we've got a lot of Kanye West fans in here, right? And that album was called Jesus is King. Jesus is King. Strange um, album name for, you know, that guy, Kanye, and just in general, right? Popular music, top 40 type hits. Uh, Kanye was one of the best-selling artists, is one of the best-selling artists of all times, the most decorated, one of the most decorated artists of all times. He has uh, 22 Grammy Awards, I believe. And while he, you know, his music was, kind of has these religious themes, never has he had such overt worship music before that he has written. I remember Chris's son Riley is is into really likes Kanye a lot and, and you know he makes his own beats and stuff. Riley was all about this album whenever it came out. He's like, oh, you gotta check out this song. Uh, use this gospel in this album. Jesus, Jesus is King. And I was like, okay, Riley, calm down a little bit. I'll, I'll listen to it. Right. Um, I actually texted him. I said, I'm gonna talk about Kanye in my ser- in my sermon this Sunday, so you better watch it. Okay. Um, so, you know, this album, seemingly out of nowhere, praising Jesus. Jesus is king. It had a lot of people scratching their heads. This album got mixed reviews, right? It's weird that now these critics, who I'm assuming are mostly non-Christians, are listening to songs with the title, Use This Gospel, and Jesus is Lord. Kind of thrust into the consciousness of popular culture out of nowhere. Say what you will about Kanye West, and there's a lot of that can be said about this guy for good and for bad. This album created a cultural moment where people were confronted with the lordship of Jesus in a way that they might have never had before. For this moment, for this album, Kanye wanted everyone to know that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Today we're going to look at the original public profession of Jesus being king. Kanye wasn't the first one to pronounce Jesus as king. Jesus himself did it through, Jesus himself did his own pronouncement. We see that in the Gospels. and We're going to see John's pronouncement that Jesus is king. This pronouncement doesn't include music studios. It did not, it does not include recording software. There wasn't a massive marketing campaign to herald in the kingship of Jesus. Nope, it included a donkey and palm branches. Yet John's pronouncement of Jesus being king is exceedingly more triumphant than anything Kanye could have done. Although, I like the album. It has nothing on John. From John's profession, we will see Jesus as first our humble king. We're going to see that through the donkey. And then second, as our triumphant king. We're going to see that through the palm branches. And so let's read together John chapter 12, verse 9, going to 19. See what it says. Uh, Just to catch you up to speed, um, 
Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, this uh, capping off of all the miracles that happened in the book of John. This is the ultimate miracle, aside from him raising himself from the dead. And the fallout is the Jews really want Jesus dead at this point. And it's within this context that we read, starting in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there at the Passover feast, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, again the Passover, they heard the Jews were coming to Jerusalem. Oh, sorry, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, uh, branches of a palm tree, and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him, uh, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So with Passover fast approaching, again, the Passover is a celebration of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt as slaves, and Moses, the Red Sea, Ten Plagues, all that good stuff. So they're celebrating that. Every year for Passover, everyone comes to Jerusalem to celebrate um, Passover. So the Jews are funneling into Jerusalem to celebrate this, and the crowds are abuzz with talk of this man, Jesus. Did you hear about Jesus? You hear what he did? He healed this man, Lazarus. He raised him from the dead. And then there's Lazarus saying, yeah, he did. He raised me from the dead. Those that witness this feat are amongst the crowd, sort of being a witness to Jesus that maybe this man is the Messiah, this man is the king that we have been waiting for. And then comes the day of arrival. Jesus shows up into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, and the people respond, Hosanna, which means God, save us. And excited Jews are waving palm branches in the air, much to the dismay of the Pharisees. Quite a scene to behold, such fanfare. We think about presidential um, motorcades coming through and everyone lined up on the streets to greet the president. It's got sort of the idea here with Jesus. Is this scene and its associated symbols and prophecies that we're going to work through today, starting with the donkey? Starting with the donkey. Just to read the text again, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now this is very interesting. Whenever you think of a king, you probably don't think of a donkey. If you were to think of a horse, you probably think of like a war horse or a stallion, a mighty steed on the hilltop with his mane flowing in the air and the light just right behind him, right? That's kind of what we think about, black beauty. 
To put it in more modern terms, we're expecting Jesus to show up in a Rolls Royce. He shows up in a Honda Civic instead. He shows up in my 2003 red Ford Focus that needs its brakes worked on. Think about that, Jesus rolling up, putting on the brakes. That's what Jesus, that's what they say Jesus rolling in on. It doesn't make sense, right? Our king doesn't come in majesty. He comes in humility. And my brakes are actually very bad. They are going to get worked on soon, okay? In God's kingdom, it's the donkey and not the stallion that's the symbol of the king. And, and that's purposeful. It's not that Jesus is trying to be ironic here, showing up on the donkey. And we know that because God said so himself. And he said so way before through the prophet Zechariah that God is going to send a king to his people, and you know it's the guy you're looking for because the guy is on a donkey. Zechariah, again, prophesying way before, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus, instead of showing up with this presidential motorcade and these bright lights and the trumpet blasts and the trumpet sounds and a parade before him, intentionally fulfills Zechariah's prophecy. He does this on purpose. Some prophecies just kind of happen in fulfillment. Bethlehem, Virgin Mary, and all that, God's providence. But Jesus himself specifically gets the donkey. That's what we see, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. So he's intentionally fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah, not only to declare that I am the one Zechariah talked about, but also to show him the type of king he would be. This is the type of king I am, humble, mounted on a donkey. We learn more about this man Jesus and the type of king he is whenever you read the rest of the prophecy here of Zechariah. So we go to Zechariah 9, 9. I'm just going to read it in context, starting in verse 9. And then I'm going to go to verse 10 so you can see it fleshes out who Jesus is as king a little bit more. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, it's the Jews, Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And then it goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of of the earth. So if verse 9 tells us who to look for as our king, the one on the donkey, verse 10 tells us the type of rule that this king will have. The rule of Jesus, it says, if you continue verse 10, is inaugurated with a disarmament program. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. So whenever the king shows up on the donkey, you know it's him, and this is what we should expect should happen after he gets here. Whenever Jesus is king, we put down our weapons. We don't take them up. And that's true for the entire world. His rule shall be from sea to sea. He shall speak peace to 
the nations. This is the type of king that we have in King Jesus. Recently, I saw a video, chilling video, of the exact moment that Saddam Hussein took power in Iraq. You can actually watch this. It's not bloody or anything. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, many of you are familiar with this man, Saddam Hussein. He's a brutal dictator in Iraq from 1979 to 2003. He was eventually caught and executed for his crimes. This video is called the Bath Party Purge. That's the party he was a part of, the Bath Party, the ba Bath Party. The Bath Party Purge of 1979. And whenever you watch the video, you, it's an auditorium full of people. They're all dressed. It's the, it's the party, the political party there, all the government officials. 200, 300 people just packed. And you have Saddam Hussein on the stage in front of them like this, behind a table, smoking a cigar. Okay? And it's 1979, so the video is kind of grainy. But he intentionally records this. And there's different video. There's a camera guy over here. There's a camera guy over here. So it's this stage production. And out trots this guy who has obviously been beaten up and tortured and just a shell of himself, that they march to the podium there. And the guy begins confessing that there is a conspiracy to do away with Saddam Hussein's leadership. There's a conspiracy against Saddam Hussein. And... As you're watching this, it's obvious that that's just not the case, that they're trying to pull something. And this guy begins listing off names of people that are part of this conspiracy. And so a name is listed off, and then guys from the back, they come and find that guy sitting in his seat in the auditorium, and they grab that guy, and that guy disappears. Another name is listed. Another name is listed. Saddam Hussein comes up. He starts listing names. He says, we cannot abide with traitors in our midst. And as this is happening, people understand they're trapped, praying, hoping that their name is not listed on the list there. It's blood chilling, because you know what's happening, right? You know that this guy is taking over right now. People begin standing up. They start saying, all hell Saddam Hussein, long live Saddam Hussein, trying to get ahead of what's happening here. And then the video ends. What they don't show you is that these people who are taken out, these people who are taken outside are then executed, and they're executed by the very people that were left inside whose names were not called. Saddam Hussein gives guns to the people whose names were not called and has them execute the people whose names were called. It's a brutal display of force by this man, Saddam Hussein. This is the most extreme expression of kings in our day. The rule of kings in our day. Brutal force. Saddam Hussein was king of Iraq. He took, um, he took that power through brutal force. He kept that power through brutal force. And he didn't lose that power until a greater king came and took that power from him by brutal force. The kings of this world rule in the most extreme way in this example through brutal force. We think of the kingship of Jesus. A humble king came, mounted on a donkey. And compare that to what we see in this world. It's the exact opposite. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 20. 
Verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the kings of these, this world, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So the kings of this world might as rights. They have the authority, they hold the authority, they lord it over their people. It shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. With the coming of the king, we see Jesus flip the role of the king on its head. The one in Christ who has all authority to rightly render judgment on all of humanity because of their sins instead comes not to exercise that judgment on us, but to take that judgment for us. To give his life as a ransom for many. How crazy is this? When we see this exalted king come in, especially compared to the rulers of our age, and doesn't yield bloodthirsty power, but gives of his own blood. He is our humble servant king. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a beast of burden, only to take a burden on himself, our burden of sin in our place on the cross. To the world, might is right, but to Jesus, it's just the opposite. The true king is a humble servant, and those who live under his care are destined to put down their weapons. They don't take them up and live in peace. This is the great promise of Jesus' kingdom and his rule. And you think, okay, Jesus has come, we're still killing each other, right? You've seen Afghanistan, you've seen the news that's going on in Afghanistan right now, or Saddam Hussein. Think about the last 20 years. Saddam is not the only guy that did that. You can think of multiple examples right now. The Nazis, Soviets, Chinese Communist Party, goes on and on and on. Where is this rule of Christ? Right now, we are caught in between what's known as the already and the not yet. Jesus is king of the world. He's come into the world. He's taken our place on the cross, but we wait for his return. We're just saying, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The prophecy of Zechariah is that your king has come on a donkey. There he is. And whenever he fully finally reigns, our weapons we put down and peace will reign from the end of the earth to the other. Revelation says that there's no more crying, no more mourning, but there will be peace through the Prince of Peace. And so for us, that is the promise at the end. Despite the bloodshed in the world, we know the final result. So whenever you are reading the news about Afghanistan and whatever war is going on, we know the result. What that shows us is just how far from our king we've fallen. That these types of unspeakable tragedies could happen even on our watch that we see across the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. If Jesus came as a king, understanding the ruthless rule that exists, and yet he comes as this servant, humble king, and dies in our place, what does that mean for his citizens? What does that mean for you? If Jesus 
comes in such meekness and humbleness and humility, who says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Before that, he says, it shall not be so amongst you. Whoever be great amongst you must be your servant. In the kingdom of God, it is servants, servanthood that is great. It's the exact opposite in this world. And so for you, as you think about this humble king mounted on a donkey, you need to understand if you're going to be a part of his kingdom, you have to live out and exemplify that same example of Jesus. We're here to serve. We're here to die. We're here to give of ourselves, to self-deny. Because in that is greatness. Jesus is our humble king. If you keep moving forward, though, in John... There's another symbol that comes. Jesus is our humble king mounted on a donkey, but he's greeted as a triumphant king. That's the second thing we're going to see. A triumphant king who's praised with waving of palm branches. This is what it says, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, that construction is very important. These guys did not just have palm branches, okay? And we're going to get to what palm branches, the significance, a little bit. But they didn't just have them. It wasn't like it was hot. They were kind of waving, you know, waving their faces because they were hot. I don't know if you guys grew up in church. You know exactly those little little fans, right? It's got the Lord's Supper on or a picture of Jesus, right? They weren't hot. That wasn't the situation, right? No, it says that they saw Jesus and then went to go get palm branches. So they wanted to herald this guy with the palm branches. Okay, so what's up with the palm branches? To the Jews, the palm branch was a symbol. And it was a symbol of national pride, a symbol of victory, a symbol of triumph. So for us, we have the bald eagle, right? It's a crime to kill a bald eagle. I think it's like half a million dollars or something like that. We, this is a symbol that we have chosen as a society to take as our own and to protect in a very real legal sense. For the Jews, it was their palm branches. And so whenever they're greeting Jesus with these palm branches, they are hailing him as a triumphant king. You don't just do this for anyone. Jesus is a triumphant king. Then they're shouting out, Hosanna, which means God save us. And they quote from Psalm 118 that says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a psalm of victory. If you read Psalm 118, it is a psalm of victory. It's a psalm that they spoke a lot in this time, hoping for victory here. That's what we call the triumphal entry. They received Jesus as a triumphant king. Now, if you understand the historical context, you might understand why there's so much fervor for Jesus right here. Because there's a bit of an elephant in the room. These people are celebrating victory and triumph, but they haven't experienced victory and triumph. The Jews are under the rule of Romans. There have been many bloody battles and skirmishes up to this point. They're not a free people. They can't do whatever they want to do. If you, uh, we worked through the book of Acts, uh, you know, our first sermon series we worked through, and whenever Paul is in Jerusalem... Um, in the temple, there's an uproar, and quickly Roman guards come and stop the uproar. 
And the reason they do that is because they occupy Jerusalem. They have power in Jerusalem. The Jews are not a free people. They can't do whatever they want to do. They're under the rule of the Romans. In fact, the Romans, adding insult to injury, they made coins celebrating their victory over the Jews, and on those coins they included palm branches. It'd be like our enemies creating you know, uh, commemorative coins or dollars with a dead bald eagle on it. That's what the Romans did. They put palm branches to taunt the Jews and to celebrate their own victory. So it's within this context that Jesus is coming into town. These folks are looking to Jesus, try to put yourself in their shoes, thinking, finally, our king has come. He's coming to defeat our enemies. We're going to be a free people. The Romans are gone. Jesus is here. The Jews wanted a worldly king to deal with their worldly issues and their worldly enemies. But think about what happens. How disappointed they would be and were as this king that they held, this man that they held as a king to defeat the Romans, just a few days later would hang from a Roman cross. Just a few days from now, Jesus hails a king murdered on a Roman cross like so many of their leaders before. Some king, right? Some king. But Jesus was a triumphant king. He was just triumphant over an even greater enemy, an enemy that they did not even see. That enemy is sin and death. I remember being amused listening to Hall of Fame linebacker Ray Lewis. I know some of you guys know who Ray Lewis is. Huge jack guy. He's a sportscaster now, and whenever he's in his suit and tie, it's like looks like he's wearing a parachute because his, his uh, muscles are so big, like he's going to bust out of it. Anyways, the Baltimore Ravens just beat the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 47. They won 34-31. to And in the post-game interview, and you'll hear this a lot, people quote Scripture. In the post-game interview, Ray Lewis triumphantly quoted Scripture. He said, No weapon formed against me shall prosper. No weapon formed against me shall prosper, quoting their victory by the very divine hands of God, as if the San Francisco 49ers football team, who was quarterbacked by Colin Kaepernick and head coach Jim Harbaugh, as if that team were a weapon against God's anointed Ray Lewis and the Baltimore Ravens. Ray Lewis does not know who his true enemy is, right? It's not, it's not Colin Kaepernick. It's not the 49ers, right? And you might not like Colin Kaepernick, but it's not your true enemy, okay? The Jews and Ray Lewis have a lot in common. They don't know who their enemy is, who their true enemy is. For you to know what it means for Jesus to be triumphant, you need to know who your true enemy is. For the Jews, it wasn't the Romans, and for Ray Lewis, it wasn't the 49ers. Who is the enemy that Jesus defeated on the cross? In a moment of open shame, and it seems triumph over him, Jesus triumphed instead. He flips it upside down. By death, Christ defeats death. By death, Jesus defeats sin. And the victory that you have, the ultimate victory that you have in the triumphant king is victory over sin and death. Okay? And you think, well, that's great, but what about this issue? 
we get this mixed up. And because of that, we get disappointed. Worldly issues, worldly struggles become a major issue in our lives. And Jesus is king over that stuff too. But don't trick yourself. Victory over things of this world is not your greatest need. It's not what you need at the core, right? The fact that you don't have as much money in your bank account as you need. The fact that there's this issue at work or that issue with this person, okay? And I don't want to put any of those things down, but what I want to get at is that worldly issues flow out of a much deeper issue. And a lot of the issues that you get into and mistakes that you make in your life is because this major issue foundationally is not dealt with, and that is the fact that you have been alienated and estranged from the God of all life and goodness and blessing. That the God that created you to be in relationship with Him, from whom the wellspring of life comes from, you've been cut off by your sin. And so you go and make this mistake. You can go and make that mistake. And you look up, and your world and your life is not the way you want it to be. And you think, i got to fix this. i got to fix that. I'll deal with the God thing later on. No, that is your greatest issue. Why do you think you got into that issue, that problem in the first place? So Jesus comes with his crosshairs on a greater enemy. Not the 49ers. Not the Romans. But sin and death. Sin and death. Two different minds at work in the triumphal entry. They see Jesus, and they think, man, Caesar has it coming. Jesus sees them and thinks, man, Satan has it coming. And Satan did have it coming. That's the enemy that Jesus came to kill. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we see this come to pass in Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone loses to death. We all die except for one man, and that man is Jesus Christ. And so with Christ and with Paul, if we truly believe that, we say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I just express how much your life will change if you truly believe that your greatest issue is your own broken relationship with God? If you can come to that point to understand that all the things that I'm dealing with in this world are just flowing out of me not being with the Lord, okay? From that broken relationship there. If, if that, if sin and Death and, and that whole spiritual reality can really, we can open up our minds to understand that that truly is the issue. Whenever you understand that you have Jesus who's defeated all of that, and your greatest need has already been taken care of on the cross and in the tomb, talk about a free life, right? Talk about freedom. But if you don't believe that, you're always going to be disappointed. The Jews witnessed the greatest triumph and victory in the history of the world. They saw it with their own eyes. They saw the empty tomb, and yet they left frustrated and defeated because they did not know who their true enemy was. Apart from understanding your utter defeat and sin, you will never know the utter triumph you have in Christ. you got to know who your enemy is to appreciate your victory. 
There's a psalm, Psalm 32, beginning. It says, Blessed is he against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I read that. You know, whenever I grew up in church and didn't quite get it, you read stuff like that and you think, that's just Bible talk, right? That's just, it kind of melds together. And to be honest, whenever you read the Psalms, it says the same thing over and over in different ways. But I remember reading that Psalm in verse, uh, chapter 32 in the Psalm there, that first verse, just being so struck. This is what blessing looks like. The Lord counts against me no iniquity, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I can live in that victory, nothing can get me down. Whatever the world brings before me, nothing can get me down. I am victorious in Jesus. It's an incredible paradox. This donkey king coming in humility, this palm branch king in that humility coming in triumph. How does that work? The donkey and the palm branch, how does that work? In Jesus, it finds a perfect harmony. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is probably one of my favorite um, verses here. Just the, the totally opposed ideas that are being harmonized in Christ. That's what it says. And you who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So we were dead, we were defeated, we were totally without hope in this world. But God made us alive. So God's changed that. With who? With Jesus. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? So we're in defeat, but now we have victory. We're forgiven. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's the donkey, right? Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes in humility. He comes in service. He comes in sacrifice. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. But then it flips, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How? In the, par- in the paradox of God's economy, triumph comes through sacrifice. Triumph comes through self-denial. Victory comes from giving up oneself. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. He triumphed by denying himself, by sacrificing himself, by dying on the cross. This is the exact opposite of what we see in this world. And so for us, if we're going to be citizens of this king, we need to understand what true greatness really is in your own life. Are you serving others? Are you denying yourself? Are you following the example of Jesus? And you think, well, if I do that, I'm not going to get what I want. You already have what you want. You already have what you need if you have Jesus Christ. Just follow his example. Do you trust him to be the king that he says he is, or do you not? As citizens of this kingdom, we are called to follow our king in humility, not by power, but by self-sacrifice, 
and to hope in the ultimate triumph of Jesus himself. He is our humble, triumphant king. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for this word and this picture. We need your word to come in here and rewire how we think about power and authority and kingship. Jesus came and he put all earthly authorities to open shame and all spiritual authorities to open shame. He triumphed over them in the cross. It doesn't make sense. It makes sense by your, Lord, your word and by your plan. I think about this world that needs the authority and the kingship of Jesus to come and set things right. That's what we hope in, that peace will reign from this end of the earth to the other, that we will put down our weapons and not take them up. That only happens whenever Jesus is king. Lord, we know that he is king right now, and we pray that we would see that rule extend where there is not peace but violence. We know and believe that that is going to happen eventually, Lord, but until then, Help us to follow the example of Christ, to give of ourselves, to deny of ourselves, where we want to be right, where we want to win. Trust that victory to Jesus instead. Lord, I want to pray for this church. I want to pray for these people. I've seen you do an amazing work, Lord, in the lives of, of the people here in this church. But I know the temptation where I want to have power, where I want to have control. Lord, take that away from me. Take that away from us. Help us just... Put it in your hands and trust you to be the sovereign king that you say that you are. Whatever the situation is, we have ultimate victory. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated. Blessed is he against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in, his, in, in whom all his sins are forgiven. We are blessed, Lord. I don't care about how much money you have in the bank. I don't care about what property you have, Lord. I don't care about how much success and work. Blessing comes from a man in whom you count no iniquity. And a woman that you look at and say, innocent, it's a blessing. Lord, help us to dwell and believe that. We love you, Lord. I love you. I thank you for this word that steers us the right direction. I pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.